fish performance models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930 1-800-643-6273. Keep those phone lines ringing here on the Pledge Drive and show your support here at WERU. You are listening to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. We've got Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce coming up next. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's morning anyway, and it's not snowing, so I guess that's good. Sun's got to come out, Alan. They say the sun's got to come out. <laughs> yeah. It is February. It is the uh, second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock, here at Community Radio WERU. That brings around, uh, that launches Boat Talk, the call in radio show for people contemplating things in naval. With your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague and dinghy sailors, too. Boat Talk is a uh, show that uh, John Greenman just reminded me this morning that has uh, quite a following, and I guess that sort of means that we're having a wake. I, I saw the wake coming. I did. Thank you. <laughs> you know right. what else I was thinking this morning, Alan? Uh, uh, we uh, weren't the original hosts of Boat Talk, Um Kathy Melio back in the day and, and Paul Brayton approached... Uh, when they had real boat carpenters. Yes. When they had real boat people uh, approached uh, Joel White and Maynard Bray were the original hosts from over to Woody Boat World there over in Brooklyn, part of the Brooklyn Mafia there. Joel White, of course, famous uh, boat builder and designer. And they did it a little bit, but they weren't uh, really radio people. It wasn't their idea. And it sort of, uh, you know, just kind of petered wasn't, out. Wasn't really comfortable for them. And yeah, well, they and uh, but you know, uh, an opportunity to get people like that on the radio talking about what they know best. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so after that, they came to us and says, "Boat talk's pretty cool. Why don't you guys do it?" And we went, "Yeah, all right." And did it once or twice in the summer. And they says, "Well, it's so much fun. You got to do it all the time." And and I'll never. Uh, I was just horrified, and, uh, and the response was, what are we going to talk about in February? That's, the, yeah, the question we both came to. And yeah. And, never uh, been a problem. Yeah, it's never been a problem, and, and we're kind of overloaded this morning and uh, uh, also trying to raise funds this morning. That's right. Um, we are in the middle of a pledge, and I'll give you the pledge number right now in case you would like to join uh, WERU, become a new member, or support uh, the station, or even... Support Boat Talk. Keep Boat Talk afloat. Call 1-800-643-6273 to make your pledge. And uh, people who do call will be put into a drawing at the end of the week for people who call during our uh, public affairs shows. A drawing for a book called This Changes Everything, Capitalism and the Climate. That sounds like an interesting book. Ooh, yeah. Interesting. We're going to talk about the climate in just a second. Yeah, and we'll uh, get around to that. Yeah, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, we have a guest in the studio this morning. Yes, we do. We have uh, 
a fella who's probably what? One quarter of the age of the boat that you're the captain of? Uh, one third, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get a little closer to the mic there. Yeah. Um, Alec uh, Shulet. Shuttle. Shuttle. Yeah. Shuttle. Yeah. It, the spelling doesn't reflect how you say it. Okay, okay. <laughs> and Alec is the captain of the Bowden nowadays. The Bowden, yes. Yep. Down to Maine Maritime Academy, famous Arctic schooner. We'll get to that. We're going to talk to a fellow who is he's in South Carolina, isn't he? This morning about the uh, CSS planter? Yes, yeah. Charleston, yeah. South Carolina, I believe. Yeah. Or at least that's where the, the planter is, was. Yeah, it's a Civil War uh, a slave escape by water. And a pretty good story, pretty too. interesting uh, story. Yeah. Story of freedom. I think it's a story of freedom with a boat in it myself. Yeah. But And, uh, you know, I started off pretty good this morning and then I uh, had a little problem underneath the truck. But, uh, you know, uh, along the way I seem to have lost the article that um, talks about the $3 million grant for a study in uh, acidification in the Gulf of Maine which was in the Bangor Daily News last Thursday. Huh. And uh, I can't tell you exactly uh, who got it and who's going to administer it and why, but I can tell you why it's important. Um, the Gulf of Maine is a pretty unique body of water. If you look at it, it uh, looks like it's uh, open to the whole ocean, but it's not. It's got George's Bank in, in the uh, stopper, kind of bottle stopper position there, and it's kind of a unique enclosed body of water in its own way. Um, has the Gulf uh, Bay of Fundy and all those big tides and stuff. And it has an extraordinary productor, uh, productive lobster fishery still that is really a good part of the basis of the economy of this part of the world. And the ocean is changing. Uh, you can deny climate all you like, but things is changing. You can deny who might be responsible for it, even people who uh, uh, heard a conservative radio uh, had a climate scientist on the other day, and the climate scientist uh, kind of stumped the host. He says, well, you get, well, it's not a question of whether it's happening. And the fellow says, well, but, 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 he's, well, it's about all the fuss is about. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then we're back on track. Yeah, we're back being yeah. fussy. So anyway, um, how about uh, that acidification and warming of the water? What's the effect of it? And basically, it's kind of a tax on the animals that live in the water. Um, and wonderful book that um, I stumbled upon at the library here, and apparently you did too. Yeah, I'm I'm a little further behind you in that book. I'm I'm still mostly in the intertidal zone, but um, it's a very interesting book. Lots of little uh, short stories, easily read in, in small pieces. It's called The Extreme Life of the Sea. Uh, Stephen Palumbi and Anthony Palumbi, father and son, uh, oceanographer and his son, and. They take a tour of the oceans, which are the biggest part of the planet, and just uh, ecospheres that uh, are just so wonderful in their diversity and, and the mechanisms of them and some of the chemistry and the way that some of these organisms live and reproduce is, is just wonderful. And they take a tour of the world, uh, and it's just totally fascinating. But at the end here, they come up with a thing about uh, acidification that I thought was just so apt and uh, kind of speaks to... Uh, you know, and, and we're talking about shelled um, critters here. Think of lobsters. You could also think of shrimp. You could also think of scallops. Um, you know. Uh, the clamors? Sea urchins, clams. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking of uh, lobsters really uh, in this. And from the uh, book, The Extreme Life of the Sea, says that uh, human beings pump uh, pretty much 10 billion tons of carbon as CO2 gas into the atmosphere every year. 
Nearly 25% of that enormous amount dissolves into the ocean where simple chemistry takes over and the CO2 becomes carbonic acid, same chemical that lets children dissolve iron nails in glasses of soda. Across the planet, carbonic acid and ocean acidity have steadily risen for decades. Acidity in the world's oceans increased 23% since the beginning of the 20th century and shows no signs of dropping. The risk isn't that marine creatures will melt into goo like the Wicked Witch of the West. They will suffer in subtler but equally dramatic ways. Marine animals make their shells out of seawater. They conjure up hard skeletons from clear fluid in an almost magic fashion. Accumulating calcium, calcium carbonate in uh, tiny pockets of seawater surrounded by tissue, shelled organisms force the substance into crystals by maintaining a precise chemical imbalance. In this way, infinitesimal layers of new shell form along the edge of an existing shell, uh, like a coral polyp sits on top of its own skeleton, built layer by layer over uh, lots of years. But the chemical imbalance needed to make the shell requires low acidity levels much lower than normal seawater, uh, sea and it's costly to reduce acidity for the purpose of shell making, and the cost rises if the sea's more acidic than usual. Think of boiling water on a stove. If you start with cold water, it takes more energy and time to boil than starting with warm water. And the ocean, making shells starting with more acidic water takes more energy and time for the shell-making creature. And basically, uh, it's a tax, as he says here, uh, the ocean warming and acidification harm species in different ways, but ultimately their damage can be distilled to hard metabolic currency. Calories flowing in from food and calories out burned by metabolism, growth, and reproduction. Acidification and overheating are in their own ways taxes on organisms' metabolic income. And every calorie you spend on higher metabolism to deal with heat or acidification is one not spent on growth or reproduction. Tax may be low today, but it climbs every year, and at the end of the century, it will become truly onerous for some of the species involved. Including, perhaps, Homo sapiens. Yeah. And it, it may look funny later on when they look back and, and dig us up and go, and they saw it coming, you know. Yeah, well... I have a little... Look what they threw we're, away. We're really getting off the boat track here now. A little but, bit, but yeah. still. <laughs> I have another story of, in my geology background. Uh, I had a professor who used to say that uh, uh, in geological history, they have what they call index fossils, fossils that are found quite wide, worldwide, but they're uh, very narrow uh, time-wise. They only ha occurred at a certain specific time in the geological yeah. book. Those are called index fossils. He says Homo sapiens is going to be an index fossil. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the main uh, lobster fishery is, uh, what do they call that? It's uh, sustainable at the present time, and it employs, uh, you know, a good part of this part of the world, keeps this coast running, and things is changing. Um, I deliver boats and have been traveling the length of the East Coast for the last 30 years, and I've seen it change. We used to run into all kinds of lobster gear all the way down through Long Island Sound. Mm. And there isn't any in Long Island Sound anymore. There's a little bit in, in Rhode Island uh, uh, Sound there. I, I've noticed uh, phosphorescence decreasing, too. Have you? That's uh, just a sort of a... No, I can't say that. Interesting. No, you, you've yeah. seen it? Okay. Interesting. I haven't seen so much lately. So anyway, it's uh, that and coming this way. And so... 
uh, who can we do anything? Should we do anything? Is it the who knows? But anyway, it's the uh, ocean acidification versus lobsters. Lobsters on acid. That's what we're yeah. talking about this morning. So, <laughs> well, while we're talking about ocean acidification, we should also mention. Um, uh, a sister show here on Community Radio, a program called Coastal Conversations that happens every fourth Friday at 10 o'clock. And uh, just last uh, Friday, last February, or last January, the fourth Friday there, they talked about ocean acidification. And you can uh, go, go and hear a podcast of that show at uh, weru.org. We have podcasts of all the public affairs shows there. Coastal Conversations, brand new. And uh, we welcome them. They are kind of coming into our little turf, the boat tar. We're, you know. Well, they're just filling in the, the slip next in door. The, <laughs> in the waterfront end over here. But it's all right. There's plenty of room, as we say. Yeah. And uh, the hosts, um, uh, WERU longtime volunteer, uh, founder of Bronzewell, Paul, Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson, yes. From Maine Sea Grant and the other host. Uh, you wrote it down. I did not. Write it down. <laughs> Natalie Springle. Natalie Springle. Yep. Thank you. God is looking over us. Amy, engineering the program this morning. Hey, uh, we'll get on track in a minute here. We ought to give a couple phone numbers a recorder into Boat Talk. And uh, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague this morning, your hosts. Uh, we're trying to raise funds this morning. How about give them a call at 1 800 6 to make a pledge. Um, the Toll-free call-in number is 1-866-625-9378. If you'd like to go direct to, uh, I don't know if we can call ourselves here in the uh, at the helm, but we're uh, <laughs> we're at the head of the story here anyway. And uh, oh, we have a uh, another renewal to, to thank uh, Captain Yo has called in with the Flaming Fish Performance Models. Interesting uh, YouTube's on that one too. Uh, Flaming Fish Performance Models. Thank you very much. Has renewed his business membership. Thank you, yo. Well, where are we at here? And, and let me also point out to uh, Captain Alec. While you're sitting there, uh, you're you're as much a co-host as a guest. We like to think. Oh, sure. But I, you know, yeah. I figured you were on a you were on a track there. And... Uh, <laughs> you try reading uh, with bad eyesight from a couple pieces of paper and a book. That's all confusing. So anyway. And uh, do it without getting your tongue all tied. But anyhow, um, yeah, if you have anything to add, you just uh, uh, get close to that microphone and say yep, whatever yep, you like. Okay. So where are we at, Alan? Well, we are ready to talk, I guess, a little bit more about um, clamming. No, the uh, our friend Joe Parada, who uh, you may remember is a... Uh, Long-time WERU volunteer as well. And Clammer is um, getting together, uh, trying to, um, I guess, farm is the word, um, oysters. Joe was the subject of the lead editorial in the Ellsworth American uh, week before last, and that's quite saying something. And he has been applying for aquaculture permits for years now, literally. And uh, over in Morgan Bay and now down in uh, Goose Cove and Trenton. You're talking about the ocean changing. There is something yeah, right there. Yeah, that isn't that interesting? People don't like to see. No, and they don't like uh, to see the working waterfront so much. Uh, there is a fellow uh, literally who has a subdivision over in Bar Harbor that says that it's going to ruin his high-value real estate if uh, somebody, uh, you know, fish farms uh, netted buoys out in front of his 
place there. I like to see activity on the water personally. <laughs> yeah, I like ships, I like fishermen. I, we, you know, we talk about having to import foreign fish, but we don't want to raise them here. You know, Used to have some friends that urchin back in the gold rush days, okay? And the urchins are the good ones are right inshore, okay, in the shallows and stuff. And uh, so they come in, and of course they're rocking and rolling. They're jumping in in the winter ocean water. It's it's January or February, and and so they go right up, they got this beautiful ledge, and there's a lady that lives in this house here, and she comes out and yells at them, okay, go away, you know? And next day the radio's got to be louder, and they're going to bring friends, you know, <laughs> <laughs> until all the urchins are gone on that ledge. And uh, that poor lady ought to just kind of, you know, yeah, find I mean, interest in what they're doing. I mean, she might be, you know, feeling like she's missing her view, but that's their that's their livelihood. And, you know, I mean, it's people making a living out on the water and, and making it work, you know. But. And the working waterfront is, uh, again, uh, you know, coastal. Uh, uh, it's, it's how the uh, place works, basically, let alone a, a good local newspaper uh, from the Island Institute. Okay, well, let's uh, jump into the Bowdoin. Bowdoin was built, what, 1926? Uh, 21. 21, yeah. Yep. Quite old, right here in the state of Maine. Yep, yep, and, East Booth Bay. Yeah, so. and built to be uh, an icebreaker of sorts. Yeah, uh, well, as Eric Jurgensen, who was uh, the captain before me, he likes to call her an ice wiggler. Ice uh, wiggler, I yeah, like that better, yeah. Try not to bash into the thick stuff too much. <laughs> <laughs> Especially but, with the bowsprit. Uh, actually, she's never had a bowsprit. Oh, really? She's, okay. Yeah, she's uh, yeah. What, what they call a knockabout schooner. So she, knockabout and topless. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, bald-headed. Bald-headed topless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was built with, you know, the idea was to always keep everybody on the deck so that if you've got nasty weather and you've got to take sails in, you don't have to go out on the bowsprit and you don't have to climb aloft. And, I'm all for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially in the Arctic waters, you know, I, 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 it's cold enough here. <laughs> I mean, especially this time of year. But even in the summer, you know, you don't want to spend too long in there. But. Well, tell us a little bit of the history of the boat, Alec, and let's uh, go back that we were just talking on uh, Boat Talk a little while ago about a, uh, a brand-new book by a fellow named Hampton Sides called In In the Kingdom of Ice, yep. where uh, the USS uh, Jeanette, a uh, polar expedition about 1880, uh, went and locked themselves up in, in uh, uh, the Barents Sea, uh, north of Alaska. Everybody else tried to go up the western coast of Greenland, and nobody had got to the Arctic yet. Yep. It was a subject of great fascination and quite wonder. And some people even thought at the time, at the end of the 1800s, that there was a warm tropical sea at the top of the earth there, possibly from the vent coming from the hot middle. Of course. <laughs> Fantastic creature. If you could just get through that ice, okay? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people died trying. And uh, the USS Jeanette, this this book, Into the Kingdom of Ice, just a wonderful read, uh, Hampton Sides, brand new. But anyway, they were they were some of the last people to think that. Uh, a lot of them died thinking that. And uh, they purposely froze themselves into the ice. It was a, a long uh, uh, thought technique. And the ice drifted them north. Same uh, uh, Friedrich Nansen, the uh, uh, Norwegian fellow, finally got there with Fram. He did the same thing. Yeah. So... Tell us about uh, 1924, not that far after after the first people had, had first got to the North yeah. Pole. Well, actually, Bowdoin, she was built to be frozen in the ice. So she was yeah. built to be uh, the idea that the ice would be trying to crush in around the boat. And uh, so she, you know, went up and spent a few winters up there where they went up and they sort of found their spot. And uh, they froze the boat in, uh, and you know she's she's got what you'd sort of think of as a wine cork sort of, or a, excuse me, wine bottle sort of shape to the hull. 
so that uh, as the ice presses in around it, it would sort of push the boat up, mm -hmm. you know, and instead of just crushing the sides. Well, Alec, um, I'm going to interrupt you right sure. in the middle. Of it. Uh, we do have a phone call, so let's let's go to the phone and talk with, uh, I believe it's Dennis. Are you there, Dennis? Yes, I am, and good morning to good, you. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Thank you. You, um, you are, I believe, the... Uh, at least other people say, the number one rated historian on the uh, the Civil War boat, the USS Planter. I wonder if you'd mind uh, giving us that story, right, to start right out. And just, uh, uh, we've just changed subjects, just if everybody's clear on that. Oh, yes, yes. Are we juggling the... Well, yeah, we're not in the ice anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to put well, Alec we're down. down. We're down in the south now. going to put <laughs> Captain Alec down for a minute. Yeah, I thought I'd give you all a, a little insight from the sunny south here. I know you all have had your fair share of snow up there. so We do. Uh, I'm calling from uh, from Beaufort, South Carolina. And, nice there. Uh, I had the good fortune of becoming a close family friend of the descendants of Robert Smalls and of John Ferguson, the original owner and ship's captain for the planter. Uh, the story is is a it's it's an unbelievable story of of bravery and uh, just you know unbelievable action under fire. Uh, and and what happened was Robert Small's mother was enslaved uh, in Beaufort. Uh, he was born at the uh, the home of the uh, plantation owners and was raised by his mother and the plantation owners up to the age of 12, where he was sent to Charleston and became uh, probably the most knowledgeable and dependable wheelman of all the paddle steamers in the area that were servicing the cotton and rice plantations at the time. So he was very familiar with the estuaries and the, and the backwaters of the tidal area here along the sea islands, of the low country in the Carolinas. Okay, Dennis, um, and, um, can we do a little quick, brief description of what a, a panel, a paddle steamer is, looks like? Sure, sure. Um, and the planter is very typical. Uh, the ship that we're going to be talking about is called the SS Planter. It was 141 feet long. It had a beam of 30 feet. And with the paddle guards you know, that were out there to protect the paddle wheel housing. The total overall width of the ship was 49 feet. Uh, the thing that made them very unique was that they had a depth of draw of only 3 feet 9 inches with a hold depth of 8 feet. Wow. So there was approximately a 4-foot freeboard on the ship. Hmm. Um, it was driven by... Uh, a fairly new type of steam engine. It was called an inverted oscillating engine, which was the forerunner of today's triple, uh, if you will, triple uh, uh, steam-powered engines that, that, you know, that powered ships for years and years. But uh, it was an engine that was uh, invented and developed in the British Isles. Uh, John Ferguson, the original ship's captain, uh, came from Scotland, uh, in 1849 by way of Nova Scotia, and he'd had several years of exposure to that type of engine uh, in the marine business in the, in, the, uh, in the British Isles. So when he came over, uh, he brought with him knowledge of a type of steam engine that was not new or familiar to the waters of, uh, of you know, the coastal uh, uh, colonies, if you will. <laughs> so 
anyway, uh, when he uh, came over, he was first mate on a vessel called the Darlington, which serviced the, the rice and cotton plantations up and down the P.D. River, uh, sailed out of Georgetown and toward Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and, and served on uh, the Darlington as first mate for a few years. Uh, eventually, uh, he was able to raise enough funds to have his own ship built, and that was the planter. She was constructed at uh, uh, the F.M. Jones shipyards at uh, Hadrill's Point, which is uh, uh, in the Charleston area. She was constructed of live oak timbers, uh, red cedar planking. Her, her hull was sheathed with copper plating. Uh, and because of the, the new steam engine that, uh, that he brought the knowledge of with him, she was, in fact, the fastest ship in all of Charleston Harbor and the most maneuverable because uh, up until that time, many of the steam engines were, were just a single mount, horizontal mount, you know, uh, push and pull kind of a, of a horizontal cylinder that ran both paddle wheels. And, and being on the Darlington, Ferguson was familiar with the idea of being trapped in the estuaries with close proximity and not have the ability of running the paddle wheels forward and reverse on opposed sides. So many of those ships could not be spun. They, they had to just sort of, uh, you know, muddle away. Back, uh, back and fill, we call it around yeah, here. That's right. And it sounds and, like... And, so when he had the planter built, he actually had two engines put on board, one for each paddle wheel. Sounds yeah, like we're uh, in just the right place at the right time, too, or the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess. Uh, the cradle of the Civil War, uh, Charleston exactly. Harbor, exactly. Fort Sumter. Um, the the, the, uh, the planter was built in uh, 1860. She was launched in October of 1860. And, of course, uh, her orders to where she was uh, uh, commandeered by the Confederacy uh, actually, I have a copy of her, her orders that, uh, that ordered her to the service of the state in March of 1861. And, of course, Fort Sumter occurred in April of 1861. So the planter was in commercial service for only five months before uh, Fort Sumter happened. So she was a brand-new ship. Now, Robert Smalls had, uh, had learned the trade as the wheelman, and was known uh, amongst the uh, the naval people there uh, in the Charleston uh, arena. And John Ferguson hired him and the other six crew members for his brand spanking new ship. And so Robert Smalls essentially was the new wheelman on the new ship starting in October of 1860. Now you said hired. Is that is that correct? Uh, yes, because uh, back in those days, uh, the enslaved people. Actually, uh, there were there were three kinds of enslaved people. There were the field workers who just you know maybe lived age twenty twenty five, and then there was kind of a caste system, if you will. Uh, there's another level of of people that were enslaved, and they actually were hired out. They had a skill or a trade, and they were actually hired out where they worked for. Uh, you know, whatever their trade might be, and the earnings from their from their labors would go back to their owner. So he was actually hired out to John Ferguson by his owner, Henry McKee, for him to be the wheelman on the planner. Being a wheelman is a specialty gig. 
Absolutely. Which is a good and thing. Really, That's a good thing. What's really amazing is Robert Smalls was uneducated. He was illiterate, but he was the wheel man on, on the planner. And he had to know all of the tides. He had to contend with wind and weather like anybody else would. Uh, charts were, were not what they are today, but there were maps. And uh, he essentially learned the waters just from experience in being uh, there and, and, uh, and doing his thing. Now, moving along, uh, as as things unfolded after Fort Sumter, the planter and Robert Smalls were used uh, by the military. Uh, they were used for the transport of troops, timbers, armaments, anything to do with fortifying Charleston Harbor and the area around the planter was involved with. And so Robert became quite knowledgeable about the placement of mines and torpedoes in the waters, as well as knowing where the gun emplacements were all around Charleston. So he had quite an interesting uh, collection of, uh, of military knowledge. And the planter was the dispatch steamer for General Ripley, the commanding general of all of the Confederate emplacements around Charleston. So, I mean, Robert was, you know, he knew everything about the strategy that was going on there from a, from a Marine perspective. Um, later on, about a year later, the planter was and their crew was involved with moving some armaments off of Coles Island. Uh, they were abandoning one of the islands along the uh, Sea Islands one of the uh, emplacements, and they were relocating the, the guns that had been there into another new position. And they'd been working real hard all day long, and uh, that evening uh, the uh, uh, Confederate officers that were on board the ship decided they wanted to go see Mama overnight. There were no officers on board the ship, and Robert and his crewmates had been planning for a number of months about the great escape. They, they had figured out that if they could get beyond Fort Sumter and sail out to the blockade fleet, which is just on the horizon uh, outside the harbor, they could actually sail to freedom and, uh, and get away from, you know, everything they'd been exposed to their entire lifetime as enslaved people. And just, just a few months prior to that, uh, the city of Beaufort had been occupied by federal forces, and Robert's mother had become a free woman. And so that was even more impetus to them to to want to uh, to sail to their freedom. And so, uh, three o'clock in the morning, they uh, they stoked up the furnaces, uh, got the boilers up to pressure, and uh, they tooted the whistle. And by the way, the, the the ship was berthed directly in front of the headquarters of the commanding general, uh, with sentries on the wharf, and. Uh, they just, you know, acted like it was a normal early morning start to business, and uh, they they uh, backed away and and went up three or four wars further on up the uh, the shoreline there and picked the families up off another ship. The families there were actually 17 people on board the ship when they sailed out of Charleston Harbor. Seven of them were crew members. The other 10 were wives, children, uh, and friends. And and they just, you know. But now, they didn't. They didn't try to sneak out, did they? No, no. Uh, they 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 blew the whistle. They let everybody know they were coming. They waved. Uh, <laughs> Robert's uh, uh, exposure, uh, being the, the the general's dispatch ship. I mean, everybody knew who the ship was, and and so he didn't try to sneak out at all. Uh, they made it very uh, uh, routine looking kind of a thing. And in fact, uh, the uh, the 
the captain of the ship had a very distinct outfit that he wore. He had a straw hat that he wore whenever they were they were underway, and they kept the hat in the pilot house. And so Robert put the put the uh, the captain's hat on as kind of a disguise. And you know, when they got out to Fort Sumter, and they were challenged by the sentries out there, he just uh, they they tooted a, a challenge whistle to the ship, and he tooted them back the coded response. Uh, and you know, I mean, everything just looked like it was normal. It's just you know, uh, Captain Rallier was out on an early morning start, getting down to business, and they sailed right on past and uh, at a normal speed. I wonder what. And when point... they finally got past the fort, well, then they they opened up and they you know sailed as fast as they could to get on out to the Block E fleet. I wonder what. Point well, they were intercepted the... by the onward a gunship that was out there, and the onward was getting ready to blow them out of the water because you know we've all heard stories about the blockade runners and, and the experience they had. And the planter was an armed gunship steamer under full steam, headed straight to the blockade fleet, and was perceived as a threat to the blockade ships that were out there. And. Uh, Robert's wife, Hannah, had been a chambermaid at the hotel there in town, and she had a white bed sheet with her, so they ran the bed sheet up the main mast uh, as a surrender flag, and that's the only thing that kept him from being blown out of the water that night. Now, this, this whole thing happened between 3 a.m. in the morning and 7 o'clock a.m. And uh, so, I mean, you know, it was it was quite a, a thing under the cover of darkness. Uh, this was the first week in May of 1861. That this, or 1862 that this happened. Sort of now, had a wonder at what point everybody they, in Fort Sumter uh, went like. They oh, went geez. on through that throughout the war. Robert stayed with the ship. Uh, it was turned over to the Federal Navy. It became a Navy ship. Then it became it was it was turned over to the Army because the planter had been built with with furnaces that burned firewood. Well, the Navy was a coal Navy, and they didn't know how to chop wood, and they didn't like the planter being a fire, uh, a wood burner. So eventually the planter was turned over to the Army and uh, was, was used in numerous uh, clashes with the Army in the local area here and then the, in the estuaries again in, in the low country in the Sea Islands. Uh, one of those encounters at Secessionville, the planter got caught between two artillery batteries and essentially got pretty much blown out of the water. She stayed afloat, but all of her cabin structures, the pilot house and everything else were severely damaged. Um, she eventually was sent to Philadelphia for repairs, was rebuilt. Uh, new boilers were installed. The engines were rebuilt. While she was in Philadelphia, Robert hired two tutors and he became literate at that point. When they got back from uh, Philadelphia, that wasn't until January of 1865 we're talking about. And, of course, the war was over just a few months later. Um, and that education that he gained in Philadelphia was uh, the beginnings of his qualifications, really, for a political career. He rose to uh, political aspirations where he actually served five terms as a U.S. congressman from the area in Washington, D.C., so here's this young boy, born enslaved, illiterate to the age of 23, rose to five terms as a U.S. congressman. Now, at the same time that he was uh, uh, aspiring in his political career, uh, John Ferguson was able to reacquire the ship at the end of the war. Uh, it was sold in, in, uh, to an agent of his in Baltimore. 
1866. He he registered the ship in Baltimore, brought it back to Buf- or brought it back to uh, Charleston, and re-enrolled her. And uh, we have copies of all those ships' papers, all the progressive enrollments. Uh, Ferguson was was in the Georgetown, Charleston area for two years after the end of the war where he and the planter were back doing the rice and cotton estuary business before he passed away from malaria. His wife continued the ownership of of the planter. Uh, She had to sell shares in it. In 1876, uh, the planter was involved uh, with transporting from Georgetown down to Charleston, and she saw uh, a schooner. Uh, the Carrie Melvin that had gone aground at Cape Romaine, and she went in to try to rescue the schooner. And the planter itself uh, was grounded, and the hull was opened, and she was lost. So the last enrollment document that I have uh, just says vessel lost at sea. And uh, that led to then the search recently of NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, uh, sent their uh, research dive team up to the Cape Romaine area. They used uh, side scan sonars and what have you, and they have located the remains of what they believe to be the ship. Uh, after she was grounded, uh, they did go out and salvage what machinery uh, was salvageable, but obviously things like boilers uh, are too big to, to contend with. And so the, the pings that the NOAA people got, they believe, are the, uh, the boilers. Uh, last summer, there was a, uh, a dedication ceremony at the Seaweed Wildlife Refuge Center at Cape Romaine. The NOAA people were there. The, the National Fish and Wildlife Service uh, hosted uh, the celebration and a historical marker was erected there uh, commemorating the site of its grounding. That followed the uh, 150-year sesquicentennial celebration in Charleston from uh, a year ago where they uh, recognized and erected uh, historical markers to Robert Smalls and the Great Escape story. So, uh, you know, this whole thing is, is just, uh, it's three stories. It's about the ship, it's about Robert Smalls, and it's about the ship's owner, John Ferguson. Sounds uh, to me like a story story about freedom with a boat in it. Um, absolutely. I'm fascinated absolutely. by Robert Smalls there. He was, uh, as you say, uneducated, illiterate, but he wasn't stupid at all. He had absolutely. a very uh, specialized job in a, in a kind of special environment, too, the... I'm thinking the waterfront's kind of cosmopolitan, too, and it's also, uh, Captain and Al- Alec and I were talking earlier, it's kind of a meritocracy, you know, if you can be good at your job, um, you know, you can do whatever job, no matter who you are. Um, but he he wanted to be free, he stole that boat, so then he's free, but it's the middle of the Civil War, and how free is he? And uh, then he he went on to become a state senator before he was a U.S. congressman, I believe, and uh, and again, a uh, hundred years later, there's the Civil Rights Act. How free, uh, you know, is is he free yet? And and so I was just thinking about a fellow like that trying to climb that ladder, you know, that greased ladder in the dark with people throwing stuff at you and hitting you with sticks and and uh, thinking of that of that struggle. And and uh, as you said, his 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 mother was freed. Well, she wasn't quite free yet either, was she? 
Uh, no, not really. But, but Beaufort at that time was the was the uh, the headquarters of the Army in the South. Uh, Admiral Dupont had sailed into Port Royal Sound, and Beaufort essentially was was uh, captured uh, with a, a shot not being fired, and it was the headquarters of the Army in the South all the, all during the occupation. Uh, if your if your listeners are intrigued by the story and want more information, there is a book that that I would like to uh, to mention. Um, if that's okay, oh no, sure, go ahead. I'd like okay, to hear the about title the... of the book is called "Yearning to Breathe Free." Its author is Andrew Billingsley, published in two thousand and seven, University of South Carolina Press. And if you're interested in the political career of Robert Smalls, there's another book called Dulles Statesman. The author of that book is a man by the name of Miller. And those two books pretty much outline everything I've talked about. Um, Sounds like there's a movie in there. Um, I was first thinking Morgan Freeman. I'm thinking Kanye West now, maybe, you know. Well, I've, I've been Robert approached by, by, uh, by screenwriters, Probably six to eight people have, have approached me, uh, have asked me to read and edit screenplay uh, format. And in my mind's eye, this is Gone with the Wind from the other side of the story and about a three-movie trilogy in order to tell the story. And to my thinking, there's, there's a part one about the enslavement and the Civil War. There's a part two about the uh, Reconstruction period and the early days of uh, Robert Small's political career. And then there's a part three about what happened in his latter years. The man actually was uh, uh, a friend to many, many, many people here in Beaufort. He was a large property owner. He was a very wealthy man after the war was over. Um, there's an interesting sidelight to this whole thing. Uh, people don't hear a lot about an organization called the Freedmen's Bureau, but it was established as a government agency to oversee and care for the uh, the freed enslaved people. When the war ended, the Freedmen's Bureau needed to resettle the freed blacks from the Savannah-Buford area, and they were resettled down into the Sea Islands. Well, they're islands. And the only way you get them out there is on a boat. And lo and behold, the planter was the taxi cab, and Robert Smalls was the taxi cab driver that resettled hundreds and thousands of free blacks out into the Sea Islands. It's no wonder the man was a political giant because Buford was 80% black right after the war, and he could he could run and, and be elected to any house or he wanted to. He was he was the cab driver, so it was uh, he was a political giant in the area. For years. Wonderful story. Story. Sorry, sorry, we don't have more time to uh, explore that this morning. Uh, do you wonder sometimes? I kind of think of uh, slavery as the founding flaw in America, you know, and uh, how are we going to get past that um, without the shock of a civil war? Would have been possible for say the the quote free market to sort that right. out, and you know. Uh, right. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. 
Um, well, thank you for speaking with us this thank morning. Thank you very much, it's, Dennis. It's, it's, it's been my pleasure. And if you do happen to get the photos of the models uh, on, on your website, I do have uh, them. That's just one more piece of insight that your listeners might might marvel at. Th- these are models that you yourself made. Oh yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a museum modeler. I've I've got models that have been displayed all over the country. Well, probably a better boat builder than us, Alan, because he can make it smaller. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's 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 also uh, if you go to www.robertsmalls.com. That is the website for the National Touring Exhibit, which is in the National Civil War Museum at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania right now, to be there for a year. Mm-hmm. And there, there is an exhibit uh, that, that is uh, uh, curated by Helen Moore, and she is the, the surviving great-granddaughter of Robert Smalls, direct bloodline descendant. And it's, it's a wonderful exhibit. So anybody that might be hearing this, it's in the uh, Pennsylvania area. Uh, it, it's, it's, I think it's actually opening there next month, but it'll be there for a year. Okay, very good. Okay, Thank you, Dennis, it's been, it's been thank you for calling. Great story. We'll be talking. Bye. We've got to thank a couple people this morning, Alan, who have called and uh, supported community radio, let alone boat talk. You know, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, we are about a quarter away from from the uh, eleven o'clock hour here, and uh, you can give us a call at one eight hundred six. Four three six two seven three and join uh, Pete Buxton. Pete Buxton boats uh, from uh, Stonyton, and he's a new business member. Pete has uh, done this in in memory of our friend Michael War, who was a great neighbor uh, to Pete and a, a great friend of Boat Talk and WERU Soapbox. Uh, yeah. Michael passed on uh, just this last year, and um, so anyway, thanks, Pete Buxton boats. Thank you, Pete, and I have a thank you here from. Steve from Surrey, uh, he's made an additional gift, and I think Mike ties into this. Steve says he loves to hear the new music and often looks up the artists online and purchases their music. This week he heard the the brothers Landreth, Joanna Connor, and Tim Crackle. Oh, oh, I, I turned him on. Yeah, uh, I got to hang out with Tim Crackle uh, before yeah. he passed on, and uh, so I. Turn a couple people else on to them. Uh, Flaming Fish Models also renewed their business member from uh, oh, uh, down in West Tremont there. And uh, shout out to Yo this morning. Well, we are running out of time to talk to Captain Alec this morning about <laughs> boat talk and uh, about the boating. Yep. And uh, Captain Alec in the uh, Ellsworth American here from a couple weeks ago, here's a picture of uh, uh, six good-looking salts here is uh, uh, Captain Elliot Rappaport. Uh, is uh, Andy Chase, Captain Andy Chase, Captain Rick Miller, Captain John Worth, Captain Heather Stone, and Captain Eric Jurgensen. What do those old people have in common? Oh, those are all the other captains, all the guys who have been, uh, guys and girls who have been captain of the Bowden since she came to Maine Maritime in 1988. Uh, so Andy Chase was the first one, and Elliot Rappaport had the longest run there. But uh, So they've all been the captain of the Bowden, and uh, Andy and Elliot and Rick Miller uh, have all taken the boat up to the Arctic. Uh, in addition to that, you know, in addition to just getting to play around here and do our normal trips up to Nova Scotia and whatnot. And, um, but so uh, those are those are the six other captains from Maine Maritime Academy. So. And again, we established uh, early on before we started talking about the CSS planner there that Bowden is an Arctic schooner built in the 20s in, in uh, Booth Bay, Maine yep. and meant for uh, Commodore 
uh, McMillan to explore up north there. Yeah, eventually he even he was Admiral McMillan when he retired. Yeah, um, but he was uh, just regular old Captain McMillan when he when he started out with uh, when he first had the Bowdoin built. And uh, he would he had gone up with uh, with Robert Peary's mission originally to look for the North Pole. And uh, so he had been up uh, on a number of Arctic expeditions. Before. And people get it in the yeah. once they go north, they can't. You know, and I, I can't tell you uh, something about it. But he McMillan went north something like twenty times. Yeah, he went up to the Arctic. Yeah, just got to keep going back yeah. for some stupid reason. <laughs> he got he got down here and it was too warm. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> man, after north, just playing north. That's yep. where we're going when we win the lottery, dear. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he he went north a number of times and and took and froze the boat up uh, in the in the ice up there and he took uh, the first radio broadcast that was ever sent from north of the Arctic Circle was sent from off of the boat and. Uh, he took a bunch of radio equipment up there and uh, did a lot of a lot of uh, map making. He did a lot of scientific uh, testing. You know, I mean, it was in the early days when we actually understood uh, that the poles in the Earth actually moved, and uh, so they were sort of testing that sort of stuff up there. And um, so they started out just just purely doing science up there. And uh, then in in 1934, they they took their first group of trainees. So the Bowden, to my knowledge, and and this might not be. Uh, the you know the only thing but she she was the first uh sail training vessel of sort of the modern variety that i'm aware of uh 1934 she took trainees from bowden college up up to the arctic with her and uh perfect segue because we're <laughs> we're in the 30s and and again we're exploring these uh, polar waters here now yep. along comes world war ii yeah and these waters are now strategic oh yeah and the people who have charted them are the Bowden. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, somebody's got to go patrol these waters and make more charts and aid other mariners that are transiting with all the, the cargo of the war and everything. So Bowden spent World War Two. Yep. On, on station in the place where she used to work. Yeah. And, uh, just, you know, I mean, uh, McMillan joined the joined the navy himself and he sold the Bowden into the navy and of course he thought he was going to be the captain of the Bowden in the in the navy but they uh they put him uh into the cartography office because that was where he could be the most useful and uh because he had so much knowledge uh of of you know charting of a lot of area that nobody knew and uh you know they sent the Bowden off with somebody else uh up to the arctic and uh she did a, you know she was patrolling and she was uh she was you know chart making a lot of areas. She had a machine gun on the bow. Oh yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah, a, there was a, a vessel was, of war. Yeah, she had a deck cannon. She was yeah. uh she was, you know, she had a nice big f- number 50 up on her bow and uh you know, she um one of the one of the big contributions that I'm aware of was uh she went up into Sandestrom Fjord and uh did all of the, you know, charted the whole fjord there so that they could go up and they put uh an air an airstrip up there which was essential to the to the war effort and it's actually for decades was the largest airport in greenland and i think it's been surpassed now but that was uh Bowden was the first one up there and uh everybody else followed <laughs> now we talked about uh Bowden as a sail training vessel these waters at the same time again incredibly strategic uh littered with u-boats yep and the people on the U-boats have a choice sometimes about who to shoot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they can see the boat, and no doubt they saw the boat in a time or two. Um, the uh, legend I've heard from the foredeck of the boat is that those sailors on, on the German U-boats were sail-trained in the German Navy, which is yep. very big on sail-training. And they looked at that beautiful little schooner and they said, yeah, it's not you, her. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty possible. You know, I mean, there are a lot of sail training vessels that are owned by a lot of navies around the world that used to be Germany's that, that uh, were, 
war reparations. You know, I mean, the I Coast Guard a, Bark Eagle. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Former German sail training vessel before. That's where yep. those submariners actually trained on that Coast Guard Bark. Yep. Down in oh, New yeah. London, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, something that, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of Navy still consider that to be really important to get people out uh, sail training. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, Maine Maritime, that's the same sort of thing we're doing is, uh, you know, I mean, that's where you're really getting getting tossed around by the sea, and where you're really uh, forced to to be paying attention to the weather and everything around you is out on out on the deck of a sailboat. So. What I'm saying, partly, is the romance of that old schooner up there might have been. Oh yeah, yeah. Part, I mean, part of its charm. You how know? can uh, how can you shoot at something like that? You yeah. know, I mean, it, you might know that it's the enemy, but you you can't really accept that in your heart. <laughs> yeah. But Eric, let's go. Uh, I'm sorry, Alec. Let's go back to you. Um, uh, we like to. I got to get it in before the end of the program here, which is rapidly coming up. Um, the boat talk question: What happened to you when you was a kid? Ended up to to be a sailor. Oh, geez. you know. Uh, well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have heard you guys talking about uh, escape summer people, and I'm one of them. I uh, I was a summer person coming up here. My my dad uh, has been sailing his whole life, and so I spent my summers up here. The first job I ever had was working at the Wooden Boat School, uh, teaching sailing for what uh, I, I think that that program sort of morphed into what's now Brooklyn Youth Sailing. And then I worked at uh, Brooklyn Boat Yard in the summers, worked for Steve White and uh, worked for Brian Reef over there in Brooklyn, uh, did a little boat building, that sort of thing. And, you know, I sort of caught the bug early and uh, wound up, you know, up here in Maine working on schooners and met my met my wife and never never left so it was sort of I've been bumping around most of the jobs I've ever had have been either sailing or or working with working with students and so sort of Maine Maritime Academy is you know where I want to be <laughs> and what a spot Maine we got to talk about Maine Maritime Academy too yep. uh, heck of a place now Castine Harbor is uh, I take care of a couple boats down there it is, uh, in the words of uh, Commodore, Commodore Dudley Saltonstall, that damn tide hole. <laughs> okay, the tide rips through there. It's an interesting place to operate. It has a lot of current. Yep. And Maine Maritime has a fantastic waterfront. Yep. Um, although somewhat challenging. Well, um, that's, that's just the Just by idea. the town dock there is yep. dock the state of Maine. And inboard uh, of the state of Maine, you have this little uh, uh, harbor with the Bowden and uh, your other little fleet there. Uh, Colin Teal runs the uh, waterfront there. Well, Colin, Colin's the uh, sailing master, so yeah. he's in charge of the sailboats. So we've got, uh, I, I'm going to guess, around 45 sailboats that, that he's looking after. And then we've got Dana Willis is the is the marine operations manager, who's he's sort of looking after uh, the full fleet there. But, uh, yeah, that just while we've got a little bit of time, the other thing I, I need to mention about the Bowden is, um, you know, as we're, we're coming up right now, it's been about 30 years since she was uh, she got fully rebuilt. Uh, down at uh, what what is now the Maine Maritime Museum, she was rebuilt pretty much where the stern of the model of the Wyoming is, and uh, so we're actually looking now at, that it's been about thirty years. We're looking to replace the deck hopefully yep. uh, next next winter, and uh, replace the the uh, main mast last year. And we yep. we had uh, the builder of that down and and talked to him about uh, laminating that big Douglas fir stick. Uh, and again, uh, Alec, how lucky are you not only to be <laughs> able to play uh, with that boat, but in that playpen of Maine Maritime Academy, and, and uh, you couldn't have better, that boat couldn't be better loved or supported. Oh, no. I mean, you know, we had, in, in feeding up to this project that we're trying to do next year, we had uh, Giffy Full and Paul Haley came down and uh, did a survey of the boat. And, you know, I mean, 
Uh, I tell a lot of people that, and they say, well, you, you know, it's rarity to get Giphy anymore. You get Paul a lot of the time when, when they're doing the survey, but I think, you know, Giphy couldn't couldn't say no to the Bowden, and yeah. they came out, and Giphy was crawling around the Bowden, and he's, of course, he's 87 years old. It's amazing how nimble he was, and I was commenting on that, and he said, well, I'm still younger than the boat. And <laughs> Giphy's, the, uh, Giphy's uh, host of Boat Talk whenever he's available yep. in the summertime, yep. and uh, still, still enjoys doing it, thankfully. Yeah. Well, Giphy and Paul couldn't stop telling me what good shape the boat was in. And uh, you know, I had a I had a joke with Giffy about the boat only being six years older than him, and he said, "Well, she's in way better shape." I said, "Well, Giffy, she's had more replaced." Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we're uh, we're hoping to start replacing the deck, and and uh, just you know, I mean, it's just it's just time. Fur, fur decks? No, it's uh, it's white pine decks. It always she mm -hmm. always has been. Uh, she's got white oak planking and framing for the hull and, and uh, white pine decks, but we're. Uh, Starting to do a little fundraising in that in that end, so uh, it's organic but sustainable, <laughs> renewable, uh, yep. you know, green. Yeah. Oh uh, man, we've uh, had quite a crowded boat talk this morning. We got to thank uh, Bradley from Owlshead has made uh, his you, fifth Bradley. gift of the pledge drive. Yo from Flamin' Fish, uh, boat models Steve from Surrey and Buxton Boats, new business member down in Stonington, Maine. Thank you all very much. Support for WERU comes from Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for 30 years near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net.